Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. So grateful you're joining us for this episode. And I am Matt Harris, Seton Tucker. Where can they reach out to us? You can find us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. Seton is back in studio after a vacation that was actually full of work because uh, she headed to the courthouse for Alex's hearing, and you heard that in great detail last episode. This episode, we're going to some of the rumors, leaks that have come out since and right before, and we're also going to talk to a former FBI agent to get some of his thoughts on what might have happened. Where would you like to begin, uh, Seton? And as we had suspected, and many others had too, as soon as the murder indictment came down, we all thought it was only a matter of time then before people started talking more freely about Alec and Maggie and Paul, and uh, certainly lots of things coming out, People Magazine, uh, Wall Street Journal, Overseas, The Mirror. Uh, Where would you like to begin? Let's start with People Magazine. I think this was the biggest bombshell article of the week. Um, It starts off talking about Maggie quietly consulted a divorce attorney and was looking into finances. Uh, Your source told us that last summer, and that was hotly contested. We got a lot of heat for that. And in this article, she talks that she was excited to move forward for life with Alec and that she had moved to Edisto in February of 2021. The friend who was quoted in the article described Alec as overbearing and dishonest um, and that he made her miserable um, and she couldn't talk about him without rolling her eyes. And we have heard reports that she was not necessarily there full time. This friend says she was, but there was reports that she kind of bounced back and forth. Uh, and, and that would make sense given that he, she has family members and sons that were uh, in the Moselle area, uh, and often if you're if you're staying, even if you're staying in Edisto, kind of full time, you're going to come back and see your kids and friends and family. So one thing I do want to talk about with John in our next episode that we have him on is whether this divorce attorney that she allegedly consulted is under an obligation to come forward, or if that is something that still remains confidential, even though the person is no longer living. Uh, and we were talking about John Snyder, our legal analyst. Yes, good point. Now, the part in the People magazine that really is jumping out to people is what Maggie texted a friend about heading to Moselle that night. Right. So she texted her friend that it's fishy, he's up to something, and I don't know what. So that is pretty damning that she the day of her murder, was texting a friend that she was concerned about Alec. Now, we'll tell you the People Magazine story, and then we'll tell you why we're a bit confused about the details. People Magazine says, Alec reaches out to Maggie and says, Maggie, you got to come see my father. He's sick. He's in the hospital. The article says she had a soft spot for him and that he asked her to meet him at Moselle. Instead of, and then Maggie... The report says, like, I'll just meet you at the hospital. He won't say what hospital his dad is at. And so Maggie's like, gives in. 
I guess. And goes up, I'll meet you at Mazelle, and then I'll follow you over is the word. Right, which is very weird because if she was coming from Edisto, he would have either been in the hospital in Charleston or in the hospital in Savannah. Stopping at Mazelle was out of the way. And we happen to know that the father was in Savannah Hospital, and we know that he was taken there earlier in the day by John Marvin and maybe the other brothers. We don't know, but we know John Marvin was part of taking the dad to Savannah, right? Right. Yeah. But it's, it, even beyond that, it's just really odd if your father was in the hospital that you would refuse to tell your spouse which hospital. It's a red flag. That is very weird if that's the case. But what also gets weird, the problem, or at least the conflict we're having is, according to your conversation with John Marvin, he believed they were going to have some sort of family dinner. Right. Paul had left. He'd worked with Paul earlier in the day, and Paul had gone back to Moselle, and it was his understanding that Paul was going to have this family dinner. Okay. So let's talk this through. John Marvin and Paul, according to John Marvin, and he has no reason to make this up, Paul thought there was going to be a family dinner. So who invited Paul to the family dinner at Moselle? If it was Alec, then the theory about Alec being surprised that Paul was there doesn't make sense. Unless... Maggie invited Paul to the dinner. Like Paul, if Alec, Paul thinks there's a dinner. So he's going to Mazelle. People say, keep saying that he went there to check on his friend's dogs, which may be true. He could have been having dinner and checking on his friend's dogs. But this that whole dinner sense. thing changes everything, right? Because if this is all true, and, and sometimes memory plays tricks, that Paul was thinking there was going to be a family dinner. Somebody had to invite him there. If it was Alec, then why is Alec surprised he's there? If it was uh, Maggie, why didn't she tell Alec that Paul was joining her? Right, and why is she leaving her car running? What the story says, she left her car running when she got there. And that, you know, she's texting her friend that she's having to go to meet Alec to follow him to the hospital to meet his father. That doesn't sound like a dinner plan to me. Oh, that's a good point. If, if it's just to arrive, follow Alec to the hospital... Are they going to have dinner and then go to the hospital? Right? Well, I mean, that's possible. Yeah, that's very possible. And all, but it's really is something that I have not seen reported on very much about the conflict that we're talking about of this family dinner situation. And Paul, the theory is going, the theory, the big theory, the main theory everybody has is that Alec was surprised Paul was there, right? That, that's what you see most people running with. Right, and that's what the People Magazine article said, and I know uh, they also reported that Maggie was lured there. Fitz News has reported that she's lured there, but lured there doesn't really seem consistent with going to make a family dinner. So we should also point out what John Marvin told me was that he wasn't sure if Maggie was preparing the dinner or this person named Blanca. Which makes me, I'm going to go to Blanca in a second, but I just want to point out that with him giving a detail like that, and not knowing anything about, you know, the things that have happened since. It's not something you throw in there as a, a, a lie or to fake somebody out. It was just like you were asking basic conversational questions. And yeah, and it was in, not just they were having dinner, but he was even wondering who made dinner. Right. Um, and, and explain why Blanca comes into play. Right. So we know from the jailhouse calls that Alec appears to be very... Uh, interested in getting in touch with Blanca for some reason. We don't know what that reason is. Um, but, you know, obviously 
that brings the question to mind of what does she know? But I think before we talk about that, we should clarify there has been some confusion about Blanca. There appear to be two people with similar names, one named Blanca who worked for the Murdoch family in some sort of domestic capacity, and another person named Blanca who worked for Palmetto State Bank. But these are not the same person. I have a question about the Blanca. If it's true that uh, Maggie lived full-time in Edisto, what was Blanca's duties? Does she cook dinner every night? Does she clean the house? Would she know things from cleaning up? These kind of questions I have. Right. Or was she in Edisto with Maggie or was she at oh, Moselle full-time? That's a good point, too. So we need to find out more about Blanca. If anybody knows, reach out to us, mattharrispodcast at gmail.com. And we also should think about if Blanca was, in fact, there the night that Maggie and Paul were murdered, she could be a potential witness. I would think that she may not be a witness because that seems like we'd wrap it up really quick. I saw him do it. But I think it would be helpful in the timeline. She mm-hmm. can say, you know, she could say whatever. I'm just making up a time. I was there at seven o'clock and they were alive and I left. Uh, or she could say, Alec called and said, you should leave. There could be a lot of things involved with her potentially. What's up next? The reports of the video, I guess. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So this to me is really interesting because we've heard the longstanding rumor that Paul had gone to Moselle to check on a friend's dog mm-hmm. who was being boarded there. So let's talk about what was on this video. The reports are, I think this, is this People Magazine? Yes. Okay, People Magazine. Paul took a video of the friend's dog. As he was doing that, he could hear an argument between Maggie and Alec, his parents. Police found audio of the fighting captured in the video on Paul's phone, which was discovered under his body. And that's important. That leads you to make the leap that that is why Alec didn't take Paul's phone, because it was under Paul's body. Right, but did Alec know, if if these reports are true, did he know that Paul had taken this video? Because Paul was in the dog kennels. The report says that Maggie, she was in the shed for some reason. And if you look at the overhead pictures of Moselle, the shed and the dog kennels are in close proximity. But if Maggie and Alec were in the shed and Paul was in the dog kennels, did he know he was there? Did he know he was being videoed? I would have to think, if we're assuming he did it, you'd have to assume he did not know or he would have taken the phone because Maggie's phone was taken and we know that was thrown like not even deeply into the woods, right on the side of the road, very close to the entrance to Moselle. Right. That's also troublesome of why the phone was discarded so close. I mean, there's so many questions I have. Because there's so many places in that area including there's waterway right near there, where it'd be easier to get rid of the phone and never be found, or at least take it a while to find. But also it makes me question this timeline. You know, we know from the reports and the death certificate of Paul that the murders happen between 9 and 9.30. This makes me question the whole time frame. The dinner makes me question it, but also this video. And I checked sunset again it was raining and off and on, so it could have been darker before. But 8.30-ish was sunset that day. And this also makes me wonder, like, there's so many things that don't line up if you start adding all the leaks together. Okay, so Maggie's car is running. Is there a report that says her car is running? Yes. Well, let's quote what the people, 
Magazine article said. It says, Maggie, 52, left her car running as she got out to say a quick hello to the man who she confided to girlfriends made her miserable. It's just baffling. If she's leaving the car running just to say hello, she gets out and starts having this argument with him. Well, so there's two reasons that she could have potentially left her car running. A, she was, they were planning on leaving, right? Getting on the road. And maybe Alec texted her that he was at the shed for some reason. And so she met him down there. But Dwayne had a good point. Dwayne said she could have left her car running so that she had the headlights. So see. that, because it was dark. Was it dark though? It didn't get dark till 8.30. She, could, she didn't show up until after 8.30. They're supposed to have dinner. You would think she'd be there way before 8.30. If the dinner I'm, is true. Right, if the dinner is true, and assuming they were going to have dinner and then drive to uh, the hospital, they had dinner at 8.30, they're not going to have dinner and have time to drive. But maybe she's going to the shed, and then she's planning to go back to the house to have the dinner. That late? And then go to the hospital? That doesn't make sense. And why I say that late is because if the theory is that the lights are on, the car is running because it's dark, it had to be 8.30. I mean, 8.30's... Sunset, so it could have been a little dark, 8.15 or whatever, but still, dinner, 8.15 to 9.15, an hour, some drive to Savannah, you know, that it just doesn't add up. You're right. The timeline definitely is confusing, and that does not make sense. And how do they know the car was running? Was it, Are we going to assume that if they know it was running, then the car must have been running when law enforcement arrived at... 10, well, he called 911 at 10.07, so like whatever it was, 10.15, 10.20. So the car was running for however many hours? And Alec, dis- Alec decided not to turn off the car? I, you know what I'm saying? That's weird to me. It's very confusing. Because I've never heard, that's the only way they would know the car was running, is if it was left running all the way until after 10 when law enforcement got there. And the article says they have law enforcement sources. So law enforcement comes upon it, the car is running. It had been running, we have to assume, for at least a couple hours. I don't know. So there's some of these leaks contradict earlier leaks, right? It, it, it's, 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 there's, they write it like, as a matter of fact, this is what happened. But if you take these leaks in comparison to what we know from earlier, something's not jiving here. Seton, walk me us through the People Magazine timeline of how the murder happened. So what the People Magazine article says is that when Maggie arrived, Elk had one of his AR style rifles at the ready. Uh, what Alec hadn't planned for was that his son, Paul, being at the property's kennels checking on a dog he was boarding for a friend. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. Okay. And then they go on to say Paul was shot first and Maggie was running away. So let's take that at face value and try to help me see. Maybe we can help figure this out. So if he's waiting with his AR for Maggie, she gets out of the car. They end up in an argument. He must not have shown his AR yet, I wouldn't think. At some point, he realizes Paul is there. I don't know how. So he would have to go all the way from the shed up to Paul 
shoot Paul with a shotgun. It makes me wonder, maybe there was some sort of struggle. Maybe Paul had the shotgun. I've, I've always had that question in my mind. Again, we're not law enforcement. These are We're just regular people discussing this. But at the ready, to me, means that he was waiting with a gun ready to shoot her when she got there. So that, that, to that me, is sense. what at the ready means to me. Well, if Paul is shot first, they have to go from where they were at the shed to where Paul is. Alec has a shotgun now at this point. It could have struck, whatever. He somehow ends up with a shotgun, shoots Paul in the head and chest. Then Maggie sees this, starts running, and he shoots Maggie. I guess the problem I'm having is maybe the, the, the tactical of them writing, he had it at the ready. Maybe that just means he hadn't shown it to her, but it is loaded and it's somewhere. It's loaded, ready to go. Maybe it was slung over his shoulder. Maybe it's... I don't know, maybe it's up by the dog kennel. Who knows? But if it's at the ready, it makes it sound to me, implies that she gets out of the car and he's ready to shoot her. Yes, that's the way I took it. We're going to talk to an FBI agent, former FBI agent, in a minute, get his theories. Uh, also, a couple other things before we get to Baba Chacon. Is the People Magazine article mentions that there is data they receive from cell phones, Apple Watch, car GPS. Which, quoting them, puts the lie into his alibi. So we've been sharing our thoughts and theories on some of the articles that have come out over the last week or so. Now let's see what our former FBI special agent has to say about this. He's been on the show before. We've Bobby and I have been on Nancy Grace show together. Bobby Chacon, hello. Hi Matt, how you doing? So I want to start with what your theories are with the latest news reports. You know, it's funny in this case, every time we get a report or an update or something, it seems to um, answer some questions and then create more questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, this case is so bizarre with its twists and turns. So my, you know, the, the new report that indicates that Paul was shot first is something that's in line with what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. His body is found kind of half in, half out of one of the dog kennels. We had heard that he was supposedly out there taking pictures of a dog that he was dog sitting for, for a friend. You know, some pictures and video that people don't often do, they send back to their friends. Conceivably, Paul had his back turned and was taking pictures of the, and, and so that that was new from the, from the last update that we had had. Mm -hmm. And so my theory has been for a while that Paul was shot first for a number of reasons. I think that um, generally, you know, a young male victim and an older female victim, you're just going to eliminate the the, the bigger threat first. So you're gonna you're gonna as horrible as it sounds, you're gonna shoot your your twenty something year old son first before you shoot your fifty something year old wife, uh, because uh, he's the one that's going to you know fight back more uh, and be more of a challenge and a threat if you shoot your wife first. And I know how horrific that sounds, mm -hmm. but that's just it's something that I thought of, you know, logistically from being in the mind of a madman that is going to do this anyway. You know, so and then when I heard that, you know, Maggie's body was a distance away. Now we're hearing like 40 feet away. Um, that t tells me that um, at some point they were all in close proximity and, and Paul was working. The son was working, you know, at the kennel or, you know, taking pictures and, and stuff. And so he died close to where he was when, when they were all together. And then Maggie being 40 feet away tells me, tells me that, that I think she was shot 
um, second as she ran away. I think she was shot. Um, now she was shot in the chest and the back. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know the, the the sequence of that. She might have been shot in the chest. I, I always assume she was shot in the back because she was walking away. She was shot in the back first. Now it still could be she could have spun and landed on her back, and they walked over to her and shot her in the chest. So the sequence is going to be difficult to to determine, even from a forensic pathologist. Um, it may be difficult, but anyway. So Maggie's found approximately forty feet away, um, shot multiple times. I think he probably shot her from a distance and then close that distance. The thing that really surprised me, and again, this is that, you know, answering a few questions and creating more, if the spatter that we re- previously heard about is from Maggie, that surprises me, because I assumed that the spatter would be from Paul or from the son and from a headshot, um, because that's going to create the most spatter. Um, and, and remember, initially, I think the report wasn't blood spatter. It was Right. What do they call it? Impact just spatter. Impact spatter, impact spatter right? yeah. just, which could be, if it's a headshot, it could be a mixture of, you know, both blood and cerebrospinal fluid and things like that. So um, that was interesting to me if, because if the spatter is in fact from Maggie, that kind of, that kind of negates my theory that she was shot from a distance first, because the spatter is, um, you know, as we know, is going to come from, a shot that's taken at very close range. Well, he could have, couldn't he have shot her from a distance for the one shot and then gone up and done a second shot to get spatter or no? He could, he could, but remember as the, as the, as the, if the body is laying on the ground and you shoot into it, there's much less spatter. Oh, and okay. there's, there's much less spatter from a head, from a body shot, to a head shot. There's much less spatter from the, from the body because there's clothing in there to that absorb. Imagine the, Spatter is kind of a rebound, right? So the, the impact goes into the body and the spatter rebounds back out. And so uh, clothing would damper some of the, the rebound mm-hmm. uh, of the spatter and stuff. And so, and when you're, when you're standing over someone, you're even a little bit further away. I mean, I guess you could be, you, know, you could put the, the gun right up to them and, and they could. So there, like I said, it conceivably, you know, scientifically, it could be, I just go with, Right. Generally, what you you know, what you general know is the general theories and, and concepts and stuff. And so, generally, you wouldn't get it from you know. And and as as we spoke a while ago, Matt, you don't generally wouldn't even I wouldn't even believe I would see it from a long gun, from mm-hmm. a shotgun, or a, or you know, an AR-15. They talk about the spatter was on Alex's laundered shirt. So, wouldn't you take the shirt from a potential suspect the night of? Would how does that work with law enforcement? Shouldn't they have asked for Alex's clothing? Like bagged all his stuff? Well, yeah, yes, it depends. <laughs> you know, but again, these are things, who, who's conducting the investigation, how much experience do they have in homicide investigations? Uh, is there any undue influence? Was he treated differently because of his standing in the community? Do the, the investigators know him? You know, and, and, and there's a lot we know in this case there's a lot of allegations of undue influence on the investigation. As far back as years ago with the, with, with the, uh, with the son's crash boat. I mean, there was stories that the, that wasn't investigated properly um, when the girl died uh, and the son drove that boat into the bridge. And so throughout this case, there have been allegations of improper favoritism, maybe towards, mm-hmm. towards Alex Marga and, and his family in general. And him in particular. So, if he was given 
a lot more leeway if he was seen as a grieving husband who just happened upon his his son and wife being murdered. He they might not think of him as a suspect, you know, that early on. I I certainly did. I certainly thought he may have been involved, but didn't pull the triggers because of the mm-hmm. the, the way the bodies were. But now we know that that's probably not true. I was probably incorrect on that assessment. But yeah, I think that if they had given him the benefit of doubt and tra- treated him as a grieving husband and dad, um, then they might not have taken that step of treating him as a suspect and taking samples from taking his bagging all his clothing and then taking bodily samples of any blood that he might have had on him and, and stuff, you know, just mm. just in case. Now he did, you know, they generally will say, oh, well, I leaned over the body and that's how I got blood on me and stuff. You know, but you still you still take swabs uh, where you can and when you can um, in those situations. I want to get back to Paul being shot first. In my mind, it brings up the question: Do you think that it could have potentially been some sort of struggle between Paul and Alec? Oh well, I guess it could have been, uh, but I think if he was look, the indications to me are that that this was planned and calculated, and he lured them out there. If he was if he was expecting to kill them if he lured them out there to do just this then you would think he would have been smart enough to wait until paul had his back turned and then put the gun to the base of his head and pull the trigger well the report said that maggie was expected to be there but he was surprised that paul was there so that kind of was i guess where i was going with was oh that's interesting was there some sort of struggle like could where would you be shot in general if there's a struggle over a gun would you be shot in the head or is, is there is there some kind of no, normal thing or glancing I mean, I, look, it, it all depends on look the, the people these people aren't trained in in you know in tactical combat or right. cqb as we call it but you know if there's a struggle and paul was shot with a shotgun i believe mm-hmm. right yeah um i mean if there's a struggle over a shotgun as soon as you kind of push away from each other and separate and have that distance what the what most people do is just point at the center of mass with this the widest mm-hmm. part of the body which is the the trunk and pull the trigger so if he shot in the chest first but he was shot in the in the head right in the chest I think. yeah so i think that that would explain that i mean people's basic instinct is not to shoot at the head people's instinct is to shoot at the center of mass which is the widest part of the body it's just a, an instinctive thing and so that would be the chest now the beginning of this uh whole thing everybody was going with there's two weapons there's probably two killers in your experience, have you seen the situation where someone maybe intentionally tried to throw people off by doing something like this? Well, yeah, and by the way, that was my <laughs> that was my thought initially too. That certainly this is two killers with two guns, yeah. and particularly two long guns, um, because the transition from one long gun to another long gun while you're shooting is is more difficult. I mean, we we used to train um, when I trained with you know with an M4. And a handgun, an M4, is kind of the civilian version of an M16. It's what we used to carry in Iraq and things like that. Um, and so when you transition from a, a like an M4, which is a long gun, it's you, we, have a, we wear it on a sling, which is slung across our shoulder and our back. And when you drop it, it just kind of drops to your side. And then you draw your, your handgun, your other weapon. And that's called a transition. And um, to do that from a shotgun to an AR-15, it makes it more difficult because now you either have both of them in slings, which is very messy. I've never seen that. Or one's on the ground, or, or I don't know how you're carrying two long guns at the same time and using one. So so that part of it to me is really bad. I've I've seen obviously staging and I've seen I've seen handguns manipulated in different ways to make it look like 
more than one shooter or different shooters or, or things like that. Um, I haven't seen two long guns being used to to stage something to make gotcha. it look like two shooters. But if he did that, it certainly it certainly made me think that there were two shooters in the beginning because I'm I'm still thinking through the logistics of trying to use two handgun two long guns at the, you know almost at the same time or transitioning from one to the other. For example, he shoots. Um, he may have had the the AR-15 slung. And so now it's hanging by his side and he's carrying the shotgun. He shoots Paul with the shotgun first, puts the shotgun down, and then transitions to his AR-15 and shoots his wife. Now that that would require a little bit of time, which would, again, explain why she got away. She was a distance away from Paul. If Paul's killed first, I would assume Paul was killed in, in closer proximity to, you know, so Alex and Paul were in closer proximity when they, that shooting occurred. He then transitions. He puts the shotgun down. And either picks up the AR-15 or he takes it off his sling, and and that's going to take you know a couple of seconds, allowing Maggie to run, and and hence she's shot a distance away. It's forty feet. It's forty feet a shot that with a that uh, AR that a hunter can make a person a person running away forty feet reasonable. What's that? Is the shot is the shot reasonable? Yes. Oh yeah, those are. Those are highly accurate weapons. Okay. They're, 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 they're very easy to shoot. First-time shooters can shoot the 90s. Uh, you, it's AR-15s. AR I used to sh- carry domestically an, uh, an MP5, which is a long barrel, 9mm. It shoots the same as a handgun. But um, the longer the barrel of a weapon, the more accurate it's going to be. Long guns are always much more accurate than handguns because of the length of the barrel. And so a 40-foot shot with an AR-15 is, is not is not hard at all for, for even for a beginner. So Matt, I think didn't, what was the article said something about he was locked and ready. Oh, the people magazine said, uh, when Maggie arrived, Alec had one of his AR style rifles at the ready. Now, what does at the ready mean? Was it in his hands? Was it slung? Was it loaded somewhere? Like Mm -hmm. you said, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of layman's terms. I mean, look in the profession where we're on the range, um, there's a command called ready gun. And and if, if, if this range instructor says, go come to ready gun, we draw our handguns and we come out instead of pointing it, you know, you know, imagine pointing straight at a target as we're about to shoot. We're down from that position. We're down about 15 to 30 degrees. So you're holding your gun out, but it's pointed slightly down. That's mm-hmm. called ready gun. But at the ready, is, that could mean a lot of different things. That gotcha. could, yeah. you know, who knows what at the ready means according to, you know, somebody who wrote, whoever wrote that article, what that means. Now, if they're taking that from a report or something, I don't, I just, I don't know what that means. It's, it's not, it's not ex- an exact term at the ready. Could it could mean almost anything to me? My mind thinks of ready gun, which my mind thinks of. He was holding it. He was not pointing at his target. He's pointing it slightly down. Gotcha. Um, but that's that's just a, a specific right. range range position that we used to use when we trained. But I, I don't know that that that's what they were referring to in that article. At the ready could have meant it was locked, it was loaded, just like a handgun because it's a semi-automatic, just like a semi-automatic pistol. When you put a magazine into that weapon, there is not a bullet in the firing chamber, so you have to take an extra step to put a bullet into the firing chamber and in the movies what you do is you see the guys with their handguns and they they rack the slide back on the top of the yeah. gun right that's that's because there was no bullet in that chamber 
and racking the gun like that is first of all it's very cool and dramatic for movies hmm. um but what that does is it takes the first bullet off the top of that magazine and inserts it into uh, the chamber and thereafter the spring will do that work for you but initially the same thing with an ar-15 when you have one of them we call a banana clip which is the flat big flat uh clip of bullets that extends out the bottom when you put that up into the receiver and it clicks you still have to charge the weapon, what we call charge the weapon. So you have to make sure that that first bullet and that clip is now loaded into uh, the firing chamber. And that's done by hitting a either a button or a, a lever um, that's going to advance the, the chamber forward if it's locked back. And then, then it'll take the first bullet in. So to me, at the ready means there's one in the chamber already. It's ready to go. If it had a safety on it, the safety is off and, and it's ready to go. But that's what it would mean to me. So what do you make of Paul's phone being found under his body? Well, to me, that was consistent with him. He's Imagine he's taking video of his friend's dog to send to his friend because he's babysitting for the dog, right? And so I, you know, if the, see, that's where I thought the, the struggle part surprises me because I thought that what Alex would do would be walk up behind his son while the son is videotaping. And we do know there is some video that captures Alex and Maggie talking to each other. Right. So they're there talking, engaging with each other while Paul is videotaping his friend's dog. If if Alex comes up behind him and shoots him in the back of the head, he's going to fall forward and the phone is going to fall, you know, in him. He's going to fall right on top of his phone. If there's a struggle, then all of that is 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 thrown up in, in the air. Right. I, I don't know what happens. I mean, it still could happen that way. There could be a struggle and 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 Paul drops his phone. And then they separate temporarily and gives Alex just enough time to pull that shotgun up and shoot Paul in the chest first and then the head second. Or, you know, then as he's falling, he could fall right right on top of his phone again. But it was also consistent with my thought initially that he probably came up behind Paul, put the gun to his head and and, and pulled the trigger. Um, and then Paul would have obviously immediately dropped the, the, the phone and fell on it. Does anything make you think that this could have potentially been a staged crime scene of just any of the things that you're hearing that maybe bodies were moved in different locations? No, not the bodies. I mean, it, it, in a way, as Matt said earlier, I think it, it, it was staged to the, to the extent that it used two different weapons um, because there's no reason you would do, there's no, I mean, either one of those weapons could have easily killed both of those people. If, if that's who, if that was your intent. Now, if he was only, if the plan was only to kill Maggie and Paul was there, you know, by surprise, still either of that, that mo even more so means why would you bring two weapons to kill one person? If he was only going to kill Maggie, why would you have two guns ready to, to, to kill? Um, because obviously if you're only killing Maggie, you only need one gun. Um, and so uh, I think the bringing of two guns was, was staging. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a countermeasure. That's a stage. I mean, that's, that's what that is to me in my mind. Um, and whether maybe, maybe his, maybe his initial plan was to shoot Maggie with two different guns to make it still look like two, two, two shooters. Um, one thing I want to get into real quickly with you is as a former FBI special agent, you had to have been on cases where you saw leaks in the media where mm -hmm. they, I would imagine they happen for many reasons. One, Maybe the FBI, does the FBI get pissed if it comes from a local person or does the FBI or law enforcement do it sometimes? Is there a reason behind their leaks? And have you seen leaks be completely wrong as it, uh, as it turned out? 
Yes, to all of that. Yes. <laughs> so first of all, I deploy leaks. Second of all, there are times when we have strategically released information to some members of the press, knowing it would, knowing the result, what it would be. And so that to me is not a leak. It, it looks like a leak to a lot of people, but it's a strategic release of information. Gotcha. Um, and, and I only ever participated in that if it had a valid investigatory uh, function, if it was going to lead to something. Like when uh, there, was, there, was a, there was a phrase you used to use when I worked at Mafia in New York City, it was called tickle the wire. And so if you're sitting up on a wiretap and nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then you put something in the paper that you know the wise guys are going to read, and then they're going to talk about it to each other on the phone or in the oh, clubhouse gotcha. that's bugged or something. So you tickle the wire, and that's just to to get them talking again, you know. So you release something to the press um, that an update on a case that they they're suspected and whatever, and that's going to get them talking. So there are strategic uses of releases of information. Again, leaks to me are the improper ones, mm-hmm. and and the strategic release of information we make them look like leaks, but they're not. If you think about the amount of people that are involved in investigation, so evidence goes to a lab, you have lab technicians. In that lab, you might have summer interns working, and everybody knows that they're working on a piece of this high-profile case. And it's usually on the peripheral periphery of, of all of those different activities, you know, whether it's the medical examiner's office or the morgue. Or, or heck, even the, the 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 funeral home. All of these people have a piece, a little piece of some of this case, and so they're going to have information that isn't accurate. And if they release it, then it's gonna it could be wrong, you know, in the long run, um, because they're they're making either assumptions or they're hearing things that aren't correct or something like that. Also, I mean, look, when you do counter leak in uh, operations, when you want to find out who the leaker is, you sometimes put out some bad information uh, into the investigative team and see how that, if it makes its way out, if it leaks and you realize that sometimes if you have a tracer on that information, in other words, a tracer being, we only released that to certain people and it still made its way. Now we've narrowed down who the leaker is and stuff. So, so there's a lot of different leaks are, are, are really, a, a, you know, a rabbit hole to go down. Um, it's unfortunate that they happen. Uh, but, but, you know, sometimes they're strategic and advantageous to an investigation. Most of the time, they're not. Most of the time, they're they're hurtful to an investigation. Um, uh, and then there are times when they're just plain wrong, and and that's because it, the leaker is most likely on the periphery of the investigation, not one of the people in the inner circle. But they're getting certain information secondhand or thirdhand because they're on one of those peripheral arms of the investigation. Always great talking with you, uh, Bobby. How can uh, people find you? Oh, it's easy. It's just bobbychacon.com. Simple. How about B-O-B-B-Y-C-H-A-C-O-N. All right, man. We'll, uh, I will talk to you again soon, I hope. Great. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Bobby. Thank Bye-bye. You. All right. Bye. We also want to touch on something nice that happened this past week. And we want to talk to you about Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith was killed in 2015 in what was ruled a hit and run. Many people, including law enforcement officers, are very skeptical that it was a hit and run. It is tied in with the Murdochs in many ways, but one of the ways is that after the investigation began into the murders of Maggie and Paul, law enforcement said they were reopening the case 
of that hit and run with Stephen Smith because of something they found in their investigation. So that brings us to what happened uh, with the Smith family, Seton. So we want to welcome Suzanne Andrews. Uh, she is the founder of The Standing for Stephen Charity, and it was a big week this week. So tell us about it. It definitely has been. Uh, last Sunday, we had Stephen's unveiling service for his headstone, which is the core reason Standing for Stephen um, even became a seed in my mind of an idea. So we were able to get that accomplished and finished and put in and had a beautiful service for Miss Sandy and Stephen's twin Stephanie and their family. It was great. It, we had a, um, a great day. It rained and it was hot and there were a lot of mosquitoes and gnats. But <laughs> That's the <laughs> South. <laughs> That's well, the South, right? Welcome to South Carolina in the <laughs> summer. Was, exactly. And I actually said that when it started pouring down, raining right as I was starting to talk and I looked at Miss Sandy. I'm like, do you want to keep going or do you want to wait and see if it stops raining? She's like, let's keep going. I said, we're doing it low country style. Yeah, you go. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And cemetery with the rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us some of the highlights of your speech because when you were telling me about it, I thought it was impactful. Oh, thank you. Um, Mainly just two things that I had in mind. I, it, it was hard. I really struggled with what to say because I didn't know Stephen. Um, but I have learned so much about Stephen through Miss Sandy and Stephanie. But one thing was I wanted, you know, Miss Sandy's favorite Bible scripture, um, which was Joshua 1 9. And, um, the second thing was just the number seven kept coming to my mind. And we literally, Stephen died seven years ago. The headstone went in seven years to the week of he, him being buried. And it was the seventh day of the week on a Sunday mm-hmm. on the 17th. Wow. So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of meaning behind that as far as biblical terms with the number seven. Um, it's a, a powerful angel number. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it means in biblical terms, it's perfection and totality, completeness and achievement. And I feel like that's what standing for Stephen has done with their main goal uh, by getting and achieving and finishing, getting him a headstone. And then the number 17, which it was on July 17th, means overcoming any challenges. And it's a sign that victory is in sight. And I have no doubt that Stephen's victory and Miss Sandy's victory is within sight, hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, it does seem like there's been a lot of attention since Alex's arrest on the Stephen Smith case. And in fact, there was an article in People Magazine this week highlighting it. So I just kind of wanted to find out from you how the Smith family felt about this and all of the renewed attention. Obviously, any any attention to the story, to Stephen's story, is much needed. Um, there's not that proverbial red string connecting dot A to B with Stephen's case like there is with Gloria Satterfield or 
the boat crash. So Stephen's story kind of, he does get the attention, but not as much as the other stories. So um, Christine Pelisek at People Magazine called me the Friday before the unveiling. And we spoke for two hours, close to two hours. And she actually was not even aware of the unveiling. She was just reaching out because uh, she was going to do an article on um, People Magazine online. And she's one of their crime investigators uh, or crime editors. And she was just absolutely amazing and um, did a wonderful job articulating Stephen's story. And it's just it's, it's been amazing to see it out there. And I begged her, as I will beg anyone, please keep his story out there um, to bring light to the dark of his story and to give Miss Sandy some hopeful answers to this seven-year awful tragedy that she's had to endure. Does the family have renewed hope with the most recent developments? I hope so. I think so. Um, Miss Sandy, she is just a woman of faith and um, she amazes me every day, every time I speak to her. But definite faith and hope she has tenfold in getting answers. Well, thank you for all you've done. And uh, I'm sure it's very much appreciated by the family. And thank you for joining us. Thanks to everyone that came out. And I encourage anyone to go to Facebook for the uh, Standing for Stephen Facebook page. There's all kind of clips and pictures from the unveiling. And if uh, I beg and beg and beg, if anyone has any information, I don't care how minute you think it might be with Stephen Smith's death, please go to SLED or either Crime Stoppers of the Low Country. You can make it an anonymous tip, um, but this family deserves answers. Agreed. Absolutely. Thank you again, Suzanne. Thank you. Y'all have a great day. You too. You too. And we also want to touch on the fact that a federal grand jury indicted former Hampton banker Russell Lafitte on a bunch of bank and wire fraud schemes, allegedly, with Alec Murdoch misappropriating millions of dollars, supposedly under bank supervision. And there was, however, we can tell you, a bond a hearing for Russell Lafitte. Yes, so Russell received a bond of $500,000, and we will talk all about that in our next episode. We'll bring our legal analyst on, John Snyder, and it should be an interesting conversation since these are the first federal charges we have seen. And we also have gotten a lot of questions from our listeners that we will talk about with John. As always, we are grateful that you take some time to spend with us and you can find us Murdoch podcast on Facebook, murdochpodcast.com and Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. We will talk soon. My name is Bill Huffman and I am a former Cleveland news producer and I am now the host of the podcast who killed I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not 
anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 